0: Well, i got an easy question to start with today to get things going. I just want to ask you a question. When was the last time you saw a sunrise? A sunrise, you know, uh, you got up early. Well, first you picked the day, you looked at the weather, uh, you looked for a day in the forecast when there was no uh, wind, rain, fog, uh, and uh, you pick the day, you pick the location, probably Signal Hill, and you went out and you watch the sunrise. If you're smart, you do it between September and maybe March when the days are a bit shorter so you don't have to get up so early. And you go out and you actually watch the wonder of a sunrise. I haven't had a chance to do it yet this year, but normally my family does it around Labor Day every year. I try to do it again soon. But I want you to imagine, and maybe you've done this, probably not, but I want you to imagine that you've gone to the sunrise, you've gone to the location, you're looking out, you're enjoying the sunrise and the wonder of the sunrise, and you turn to the person beside you and you say, Wow, I just love watching the earth rotate so I can see the sun. No, you wouldn't say that. That would be weird. (laughs) Technically correct but it's not the language we use. Of course, we all learned in elementary school that our solar system is comprised of a sun around which all of the planets um, have elliptical orbits. The size of that orbit determines the length of the year. Um, How fast these planets rotate determines the length of the day. If the planet is tipped, it has seasons, these sorts of things. And they rotate, and, and our planet rotates. If you're on the equator, and I learned recently, Jasmine taught me that the equator, I said, where does the equator go through in, in South America? She said, Ecuador. That's what they call it. And I'd never put that together before. I'm like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense that, that you'd have a country called something to do with the equator. So anyways, if you're on the equator and you're rotating, you're, you're going about 1,600 kilometers an hour. But as you move up the sphere, it's actually a little bit slower, um, If you're a math geek, it's a cosine of the latitude times something times something. Here in Newfoundland at 46 degrees latitude, we're not spinning as fast as we are as those down on the equator or in Ecuador. We're going about 1,200 kilometers an hour. That's respectable. That's about 300 meters per second. Um, You can't run that fast, but you you can't even drive that fast. Regardless, um, this morning, this morning the sun came up it came up above the horizon. Yes, there's twilight and there's dusk, but if you talk about sunrises and sunsets, the sun came up above the horizon this morning at about 6:40 a.m. and it will go below the horizon around 7 p.m. tonight, just before 7 p.m. We call them sunrises, we call them sunsets. We're not ignorant. We know the sun is not moving. We're just rotating. Yet despite our advanced and modern culture, we still use language that suggests the sun is moving. And I'm not an expert in linguistics, but I do know that human languages are full of these kinds of unique expressions. They persist through time. Humans have been talking about sunrises and sunsets, I'm convinced, since the Garden of Eden. But it wasn't until 1543, almost 500 years ago, 1543, that Copernicus and Galileo proved that we have a sun-centered solar system. Yet, despite that, interestingly, we still call them, even after 500 years, we still call them sunrises, we still call them sunsets. You say, Paul, how is this relevant My point here, just to get started, is that we communicate with each other in ways we understand. We don't talk about the earth rotating so that we can see the sun in the morning. We talk about sunrises and sunsets. We talk to each other in ways that we understand. The inspirational writing of your Bible talks to us in the way that we understand. The authors were humans, and they were talking to humans. Psalm 93 says that the world shall never be moved even though we know the earth is moving. Psalm 95 says that the sun runs its course with joy, even though we know the sun's not moving. The authors weren't ignorant. They were writing in a manner that we would understand them. And we understand that our Bible is made up of many different literary forms. You know this. Poetry, history, law, prophecy, genealogy, different types of literary forms. Nevertheless, critics have suggested, they've suggested that some passages in the Bible are so ridiculous, they have to be impossible. Literally ridiculous. As a result, they reduce the entire Old Testament to myth. And today, we're going to look at just such a passage. It is so miraculous, it's almost ridiculous. It's exactly the kind of passage that science-trained non-Christians stumble over. It is a celebrated battleground between atheistic materialists and Bible-believing Christians, and if moths are drawn to flames, this passage in our Bible is a flame. And we're we're talking about Joshua chapter 10. Before we look at the passage, I just want to remind you a little bit about the book and who Joshua was. I think we have a historical timeline for you to take a look at here. We're focusing our attention at the Red Arrow, approximately 1300 BC. The people of Israel are no longer enslaved in Egypt, and they've completed the 40 years of wandering in the desert, which was followed by the death of Moses. And that finishes the fifth book in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, pentateuch that that's the first five books what comes next is joshua perhaps a little reminder of who joshua was he was an israelite he was born in egypt under slavery he experienced the ten plagues he watched in awe as god parted the red sea and he walked across on the seabed to the other side and then he watched in awe as god closed those waters and destroyed the egyptian army He started out as a young aide to Moses, and he followed Moses into the desert. He ate manna, he ate quail. God calls him to lead a makeshift Israelite army, and he fights the Amalekites, and he defeats them in Exodus 17. And so very early on, he establishes himself as a military leader and a warrior. Not long after that, Moses selects him as one of the 12 to go spy out the promised land. You've read this as a child. He's a leader. He can be trusted, and you know the story. He goes with 12, and they go spy out the promised land. And while I won't say that he did everything right in this situation, Caleb and Joshua were faithful. Of the 12, only two good Bible names, Caleb and Joshua. They were faithful. They did what was right in this situation. They came back, and they exhorted the nation of Israel to get up and take the promised land. God would fight on their behalf. But as history records, Israel was unfaithful toward God. And they spent the next 40 years wandering in the desert. And because of the decisions of others, Caleb and Joshua had to wait another 40 years. That's okay. They had a promise. Did God keep his promises? You bet he did. And that's the title of this sermon series. As we work through the book of Joshua, it's called Realizing the Promises of God. It's a walk through the historical book of Joshua. No parables. No visions, just true historical events. Today, we're going to talk about Joshua chapter 10. But let me, if you're going to bear with me just for maybe a minute, I'll give you a quick recap up to chapter 10. In chapter 1 of the book of Joshua, Moses has died. The 40 years in the wilderness are over, and God installs Joshua as the leader of the nation of Israel, and he tells him to be courageous. In chapter 2, Joshua sends the spies They think they're going to take the promised land and inherit the promises right away. So they send spies into Jericho and we meet Rahab, the prostitute, King David's great-great-grandmother. Chapter 3 and 4, the nation of Israel crosses over the Jordan River, shown by the green arrow on the map. I think we have a map. We do. In chapter 5, the nation of Israel sets up camp at Gilgal, and and we see the renewal of the covenantal signs. The covenantal signs, by the way, an entire nation of men that were born in the desert, had grown up in the desert, hadn't been circumcised. And they now were circumcised at Gilgal in chapter 5. In chapter 6, Israel undertakes a siege of the city of Jericho. You know the story of Jericho. It's their first city of conquest. But because it was the first, God had asked that it would be a first fruits to God. No plunder was to be taken. Everything was to be destroyed or at least was supposed to be destroyed. It's not then until chapter 7 of the book of Joshua that we learn of the secret sin of Achan. The secret sin of Achan. And God was abundantly clear. No plunder was to be taken. But Achan and his family sinned. And they kept some of the plunder. And God knew it. And his anger burned against Israel. It's a sad story. In the end, 20 to 30 people are stoned. But several hundred thousand are preserved. Because of the removal and cleansing of that sin. We're almost done. We've almost caught up. In chapter 8, God then increases his generosity to a repentant Israel, and he gives them the one thing they were seeking when they resorted to disobedience. He lets them keep the plunder at Ai. Not allowed to plunder in Jericho, now allowed to plunder at Ai. This is the red arrow on the map. In chapter 9, we learn about the city of Gibeon. Not Gideon, the man with a D, but Gibeon with a B. It's a royal city. They send a delegation of men to meet with Joshua in Gilgal. They deceive Israel into thinking they are a faraway city, but they're not. They convince them to sign a peace treaty. And when Joshua discovers that he's been deceived and he's been tricked, they show compassion. They show grace. They don't destroy poor Gibeon. They keep their oath, they signed a peace treaty, they honor the peace treaty, and they make them servants. This brings us up to chapter 10, chapter 10 in the, book of, in the book of Joshua. That's what we're here to talk about this morning. I've titled this sermon, A Day Like No Other. We're going to read a historical event about a battle like no other, bigger than you can imagine, bigger than anything J.R. Tolkien ever wrote about. Some commentators estimate more than a quarter of a million men were involved in the battle. It is a super mega battle. Can I put two adjectives together, Chris? Super mega? It's a super mega battle in which God is the central character. Let's pray before we start. Uh, Heavenly Father, we believe that the Bible is your written word. And that by the Holy Spirit, when it is faithfully preached, your voice is heard Holy Spirit, help me handle the text correctly this morning. I ask that this sermon would encourage us, especially me, as we persevere in our biblical convictions, our earthly ministry, and our daily walk with Christ. May the public proclamation of your word this morning honor you. May it be God-honoring, and may it build the church. Amen. All right, well, if you haven't already, I encourage you to open your Bible. Do it now. The text will not be on the screen. By the way, we stopped putting the text on the screen, I don't know, maybe a year ago. (laughs) It's to help you and encourage you to be intimate with your Bible. We want you to open your Bible. If you didn't bring your Bible, reach out your right hand. Pick up the black book in the pew. Turn to page 249. We are going to read together Joshua chapter 10, only 15 verses. What can we learn about the character of God from this passage? And how does it apply to me in the 21st century? Let's read. Let's find out. Joshua chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a peace treaty with Israel and had become their allies. Well, He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lashish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Jalashish, and Eglon, they joined forces. And they moved up with all their troops, and they took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. Well, the Gibeonites sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. They said, do not abandon your servants. Come up quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings of the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up with Gilgal, with his entire army, including the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel then pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Macada. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones, yes, hailstones, down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Amazing. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Yasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and it delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. All right, so what can we learn from this historical event? After all, it was 3,300 years ago. And the answer to that question is always more than you think. Let's first start with the question, why? Why did five kings decide to attack Gibeon? Verse 1 says they heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai. This would have been very alarming. This wasn't just German occupation they were hearing about. This was complete and total destruction of every living thing, animals, adults, children. How do we make sense of this? At some level, this seems to violate our sensibilities. Why is Israel allowed to destroy neighboring cities? We need to be careful. Let me offer you a clear and thoughtful answer to that. Part of my answer comes from the fact that Moses was, had been commanded to do this. Deuteronomy chapter 20, Moses teaches how Israel is to conduct war. Yes, there have always been rules to war. Moses taught his people that how they should treat distant cities versus cities that were part of the inheritance. Moses wrote, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 20, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods. And you will sin against the Lord your God. That's part of my answer. God wanted his people to remain undefiled as they took the inheritance. The second part of my answer points to the character of God. Sometimes people think the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and angry, and the God of the New Testament is loving and merciful. Let's be clear, it's the same God, the one true living God, unchangeable. Three in one, now and forever. He is holy, he is just, This means judging sinful and wicked behavior. He has to. And remember, Jericho and Ai were absolutely heathen, broken, sinful cultures. The sin of the people was the same as all of the inhabitants of Canaan. They had worshipped idols, they were immoral, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they had been doing it and doing it and doing it for generations after generations. Don't misinterpret this. What you actually see here is a patient, loving God who has stayed his hand, a long-suffering God who has held back his hand. This is the overwhelming picture of God in the Old Testament. It's a loving father who actually held back his hand. Here's a helpful illustration. Charles Spurgeon described God's purposes in the Old Testament Like a mill wheel, a mill wheel. I think we have a picture, a mill wheel. See the water up above, see the water down below in between is a mill wheel. This is how they used to grind grain. Of course, we don't do this anymore. Free potential energy up above and a small amount of kinetic energy. And you can grind grain all day long with no electricity. We don't do it like this anymore, but it's a good illustration. Think of God as he were graciously holding back the mass of water in the river, symbolizing wrath and judgment. Symbolizing wrath and judgment. What he does allow to flow through, what does flow through, he uses for turning the wheel. It has a purpose. And in Joshua chapter 10, we see a careful and measured delivery of God's wrath on five Amorite kingdoms. God judges them to be wicked And he uses Israel as his instrument to deliver that justice. The mill wheel is turning fast, and these cities are receiving, finally, their due judgment. But at the same time, God is fulfilling a promise, isn't he? The time has come for Israel to receive its inheritance. He's giving them free cities, already built, houses full of good things, cisterns and vineyards and olive trees and food to eat. Listen to what the Lord God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the promise. This is the promise back in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord, your God, will bring you into the land he swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. It's a beautiful promise. doesn't sound good to the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lashish, and Eglon, though. They're afraid. They decide to attack. But if their beef is with Israel, why are they attacking Gibeon? Verse 2 in our passage tells us they knew about, they had heard, and they knew about the peace treaty with the city of Gibeon. See chapter 9 if you want to read about it. Commentator David Jackman says they would have been surprised that a well-fortified city with a, defense, a notable defense force with lots of mighty men had decided to seek peace with Israel. And presumably, Adonai Zedek thought that if a great and well-endowed city like Gibeon was seeking peace with Israel, that probably his own chances for military success against Israel were minimal. This is why he joins forces, and he amasses a massive army with four other kingdoms. And the goal is to attack Gibeon. And here's three reasons why it makes sense to attack Gibeon, in case you're wondering. Number one, Gibeon broke away from the confederacy. Gibeon broke away from the From the Canaanite cause. They deceptively signed a peace treaty with Israel. The rest of the Amorite kingdoms feel betrayed and they want revenge. That's a good motive. Number two, perhaps they just simply wanted to neutralize this allied force of Israel. After all, Gibeon is a fortified city. It's a great place for Israel to provision itself. As it occupies other parts of the region. And they don't want Gibeon to become a base for Israel's activities. Number three, attacking Gibeon will test the quality of the relationship between Gibeon and Israel. They would have assumed that Gibeon would quickly send a messenger off to to Gilgal on horseback as quickly as possible and ask for help. And they did. Verse 6 says they did. The Amorite forces didn't try to stop that little messenger. In fact, they wanted Israel to know. That they were attacking Gibeon. Either Israel was going to help Gibeon or they weren't. And the Amorite kings needed to establish the strength of that alliance. Well, what happens next? Verse 7 says, So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The urgency of Gibeon's plight had prompted an all-night march. The entire Israelite army from Gilgal to Gibeon It's about 32 kilometers. Remember, these men had been in camp all day long, and then they marched all night long. They must have been exhausted. They marched 32 kilometers uphill. This is shaping up to be a super battle. Five Amorite cities against the people of Israel. Some commentators, as I said, have estimated maybe as many as a quarter of a million men, and that's a lot of guys. But God is the central character in this story. Verse eight says, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hands. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. This sounds a lot like the promise in chapter eight when they took AI. God said to Joshua for that occasion, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army for I have delivered them into your hands. You can't help but see the sovereign working hand of God. He is fighting on behalf of Israel. Israel. It is divine intervention. The Lord threw the Amorites into confusion in verse 10. And then in verse 11, we read large hailstones, hailstones from the sky. And when I read this for the first time, I said to myself, hail in Israel. Isn't Israel hot? So I, I Googled it. And maybe you think, well, Paul, Israel does get hail from time to time. And you're right. Israel does get hail from time to time. Every few years, they have a quite a significant hailstorm but not like this. Verse 11 says, more of the Amorite soldiers died from stones than were killed from the swords of the Israelites. I'm not sure if you can picture this. God ordained hailstones hurtling toward the surface of the earth and only hitting the evil Amorite warriors and not the Israelite warriors. It's, I don't know, I paint a humorous picture of two guys approaching each other with swords. I'm going to get, oh, no need. You already got hit. He got hit on the head with a hailstone. It is incredible. It is miraculous. It is amazing, but it's not even the climax. Let's keep reading. It gets better. The battle was so large and so lengthy. Well, Israel needed more daylight to complete the victory. Verse 12 and 13 record a public prayer of petition in which Joshua actually asks the Lord to halt the sun. And verse 13 says, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky. And it delayed going down about a full day. Well, remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon when I said critics have suggested that some passages in our Bible are so absolutely, completely impossible, they must be ridiculous, they must be impossible, and therefore it must be myth. Of course, we see lots of miracles throughout Scripture, but halting the sun for 24 hours. Maybe you say, come on, really? How do we make sense of this? First, I recommend we avoid two extremes. At one extreme, we tie our entire interpretation of the Bible to current scientific orthodoxy. We say to ourselves, you know what, I think everything could probably be explained in the Bible by science, or someday, someday we'll be able to explain it by science. Surely the parting of the Red Sea and the parting of the Jordan River, maybe those were just tsunamis or earthquakes. Hail is just another natural thing. But stopping the sun for two days... And don't say solar eclipse or lunar eclipse. Eclipse is eclipse. A lunar eclipse takes away light. A solar eclipse takes away light. We're talking about the sun stopping in the middle of the sky. (coughs) It's amazing. Interpreting the original Hebrew, most commentators interpreting the passage simply say, the sun stopped moving. Across the sky. How do you explain this? Well, some believe, well, maybe the earth just stopped rotating. Well, if the earth stopped rotating, bad things are going to happen gravitationally. People are going to fly off and the oceans going to come out. But it's possible a big God could do that. Maybe God just stopped rotating the earth. Other people have spent years, and I want to say years, Dr. Richard Missler has spent years recalculating all the orbital mechanics of all the planets, Back through history, recalibrating and correcting for all the different calendars, and and he's figured out that around 1404, Mars came close to Earth, closer than it's ever been, about 70,000 miles. And maybe the sun was reflecting off Mars, and that created the extra light that was needed. I want to tell you, this is one extreme we need to avoid where we expend massive amounts of energy, sometimes years, coming up with explanations, scientific explanations that subordinate Scripture to science. It's not wise. At the other extreme, we need to avoid ignoring science altogether. I think I have to say that. I have three degrees in science. Many of you do as well. But we can't ignore science altogether. For for example, we might say... The Bible says it, so I believe it. whatever evidence you provide. And that sounds commendable, and it does reveal a desire to trust God's word. But I think we can do better than that if we are not to bring the Bible and the gospel into disrepute. For example, Apostle John wrote in Revelation 7 that he saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. and Surely we're not going to Ignore the scientific discovery that the earth is a sphere in favor for a literal interpretation of that passage. By the way, I hope none of you are members of the Flat Earth Society. If you are, we need to talk. (laughs) To be honest, this passage is difficult. Even for me. Verses 12 and 13 are actually a quotation from an extra-biblical source called the book of Jasher or Yasher, as some people pronounce it. As best we can tell, Joshua is actually quoting from a book of poetry. And that recounts the great acts of God and informs the Jewish people about their heroes. And it wasn't just any book, this book persisted. It was popular. 400 years later, it's quoted again at the time of David in 2 Samuel 1. And so, although it's not inspired, it's not part of our book, it did persist. And unfortunately, the rest of it's been lost in antiquity. We don't have it. Is the passage figurative? Is the passage literal? We don't know. It's now on the list of things for us to ask Jesus when we see him. One thing we can't do is use the passage to say the Jews were ignorant cosmologically. Whether they were or weren't, the use of the phrase does not demonstrate that the text is inaccurate for the simple reason, and this comes back to what I said at the beginning of the sermon, we use these same kind of expressions, sun rises and sun sets, even though we know they're technically inaccurate. And so I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, scores of explanations of this wonderful occurrence, and he's talking about the sun standing still. He says, scores of explanations of this wonderful occurrence have been laboriously elaborated, but there is no need for them and no use in them. The almighty God can as easily stop the sun and moon as a watchmaker can alter a watch. He did so, and how he did it is no question for us. We may rest assured that he prolonged the daylight by the very wisest means. It is not ours to try and soften down miracles, but to glorify God in them. Can I have an amen? amen. <laughs> if you believe in a big God, if you believe in a God that can create everything, Genesis 1.1, and you believe in a big God at the end of time will create a new heaven and a new earth. If you believe in that kind of God, then you believe in a God that can stop the sun so Israel can avenge itself even if it's difficult to explain scientifically. What applications do we see? Every sermon ends with applications. I have three. Number one, don't be afraid to extend grace. This is a remarkable story. Israel actually honors its oath to Gibeon. They come to their defense in their time of need. Israel is gracious towards Gibeon. Even though they've been deceived and tricked, they're gracious towards Gibeon. And God as well, god you can see God fighting on their behalf. What does this act of grace produce? Well, in the moment, what does it produce? Well, Gibeon survives in the moment, thanks. But what kind of dividends or fruit downstream, way downstream? It's recorded in Nehemiah. Here's a story. Nehemiah chapter 3, Steve Daw preached through the book of Nehemiah back in 2016. 800 years later, we read that Nehemiah is desperately trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you know the story. They're they're being attacked while they're doing it. And the men are rebuilding the walls with one hand while holding the sword with the other hand. And who does it record is standing alongside helping them rebuild those walls? Gibeonites. They're still there 800 years later. This never would have happened if Joshua hadn't honored the oath and extended grace and, and protected them from the Amorite kings. By this point, Gibeon is completely assimilated, most likely, into Israel. Many of them worshiping the same God. This never would have happened if Joshua's army had not defended them. My point is, don't be afraid to extend grace. Don't be afraid to extend grace. You just can't predict the dividends, only that it will glorify God. And years later, years later, God will use it, God will use it. It could produce fruit after fruit after fruit well after we're long gone. The story teaches us that grace can produce fruit in remarkable ways that we don't see. Here's an example. The the example I I use is that this Seventh-day Adventist church is extending grace to Calvary Baptist church right now. They pay the light bill. They pay the heat bill. They're letting us use their facility. They're extending grace one church to another church. Oh, believe me, there will be dividends decades from now, decades from now, when Calvary is established as a hub and a network of churches, Bible-preaching, gospel-loving churches in St. John's, and people are getting saved at increasing numbers, and God will give, we will give the glory to God, someone, I hope, will say, you know what, that Seventh-day Adventist church, they did a beautiful thing back in 2018 and 19 and part of 2020, hopefully. So the grace that they're showing us will produce dividends. And I think we will see them decades from now and beyond us after we're all long gone. Another application. God gives us the grace we need to just do the next thing. I want to draw your attention back to verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, we see the city of Gibeon cry out to Joshua for help. Then in verse 7, it says, Joshua marched up from Gilgal. No delay, right away. Now, you might say, I'm surprised he didn't pray first. Trust me, Joshua was a faithful man. He was a God honoring man. He was doing the will of God. But the point is, he went right away with no delay. Just think about it for the moment. He took the entire army. This was probably, they marched through the night. So these men were probably home doing home repairs, home renovations. I'm not sure what they're doing, but they're awake all day long, and now they've got to walk all night long. Okay, put that aside for the moment. He took the whole army. He had to summon them with a trumpet. And upon hearing the trumpet blast, what did all of those men do? They had to run to their tent. They had to get some clothes. And they had to kiss their wife on the head, kiss their children goodbye. Neither of them sure if they're going to see each other again. It's not easy for the husband He would have worried about his survival, and he would have worried about his welfare. He's going into battle. How long would he be gone? He doesn't know. Will his family see him again? He doesn't know. And will Israel be attacked while he's away? He doesn't know. It's also not easy for the wife. She'll have to run the affairs of the home while he's gone to be a helper helper suitable for her husband. She'll have to battle anxiety of losing her husband in battle. Will she see him again? She doesn't know. Will she be stolen by an invading, attacking army while the protection is gone? She doesn't know. The point is, though, they just did the next thing. Joshua got the call and they went. God provided the grace to simply take the next step. And those soldiers marched step after step after step. And they were given the grace that they needed moment by moment as they marched into something they didn't know. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, that's our calling as well we rely on the grace that is given to us to just simply take the next step day by day every day and god is faithful to his children we're not to run ahead in our minds and worry about tomorrow and a week from now and a month from now we don't have the grace to deal with that yet the lord said to paul in second corinthians My grace is sufficient. It is sufficient day by day, moment by moment. God's grace is sufficient for the moment. And John Piper has this beautiful analogy. He says, imagine a waterfall and you're standing in the waterfall and that's the grace that's falling on you moment by moment. Waterfall is a great analogy because you can look up at the promise of future grace. There's a massive reservoir up there. And all that grace, you know it's coming and you receive it moment by moment. And even better, you can look below the waterfall and you can see the reservoir down below of all the past grace you've been given, all the past works that God has done through you and the people around you. The point is, we're only given the grace we need moment by moment to just do the next thing. And that's what Joshua did. Let us be like Joshua. By God's grace, what is it that you're going to do this afternoon? Just start with that. My third and final application. God wants us to be courageous. This is the reoccurring theme throughout Joshua. God repeatedly commands Joshua to not be afraid and not be discouraged. He wants us to be courageous. For Christians, our strength was purchased through the blood of Christ on the cross. We know that all the blessings that flow into the lives of sinners came through the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. We can be courageous like Joshua, Because we have a God that fights on our behalf too. We need to constantly relearn this lesson in our lives. And whenever we face situations of danger, difficulty, complexity, God never has his back turned, his eyes are never closed. Psalm 121 says, He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That means we can sleep. Because he never does. Nothing occurs outside his sovereign will. Who works all things together for the good of his people. That is Romans 8. This is a foundational part of our faith. That we have a God who's intimately involved in our lives. And he does not slumber. Let me just close by saying. Let us not be afraid to extend grace. Number one. Let us remember that God provides us the grace to simply do the next thing, do the next thing, step by step, just do the next thing. And let's be courageous and step out in faith, knowing that we have a God that watches out for us, that loves us as his children, wants to be intimately involved in our lives, and he's fighting on our behalf, and he can be trusted. Amen.